Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Derrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two espionage movies about spies chasing after secret criminal organisations through Austria, Morocco and London, while their intelligence agencies are shutting them down. It's James Bond versus Ethan Hunt. It's Mission Impossible Rogue Nation versus Spectre. Let the spy games begin. So, as always, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 31st of July, 2015, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. Ethan and the team take on their most impossible mission yet, eradicating the Syndicate, an international rogue organisation as highly skilled as they are, committed to destroying the IMF. Gabe, did you originally catch Rogue Nation when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Uh, I did, Ben. Uh, just before we get to that, I just, just want to talk about that IMDb synopsis for just one moment. Can you have a most impossible mission? Does that mean there's like degrees of impossibility? Because isn't impossible kind of an absolute? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it does feel like when you sort of start the franchise with Mission Impossible, you're up in the stakes every time to be more impossible than the last. You sort of feel like they've almost got to basically reinvent this franchise as making it ostensibly the easiest mission of all time, but then things go sideways. I mean, weirdly, I suppose, broadly, that's what the series has been doing, given that the first one comparatively is a fairly low-key spy movie compared to where the series has gone now. But um, I guess Fallout was their mostest impossible mission and whatever the next one is called will be the however you could describe the more mostest impossibility I don't know. Well, maybe the best analogy here is the Fast and Furious franchise, right? Those titles have become more and more absurd as each film comes along. The most recent film was Fate of the Furious, which was the eighth entry in that franchise. And there's been a lot of speculation talk with that particular series that they'll eventually get to space. It's like the next frontier because everything is so ridiculous. For example, Dwayne in the last film, I think, I think it was number eight, actually pushed a torpedo with his bare hands away to misdirect it um, in one particular scene. So it sort of feels it's so ludicrous now that space is the next frontier. And I sort of feel that Mission Impossible is the same, except the difference being is that these stunts are real and Tom Cruise has a personal mission to basically up himself every time for his personal best. So I guess just by definition that each film is more impossible than the last, but Tom Cruise makes it possible. God, I love TC. Okay, so I suppose then uh, the first time I saw this, I did see this at the movies. I, you know, go see all the Mission Impossible movies at the movies. Weirdly for this pod though, when I went to rewatch it, after they stopped numbering these movies, you know, I think the last numbered Mission Impossible is three. Is that right? Spot on. It's it's really hard to remember which is which. Like if someone said to me, I'll describe the plot of Rogue Nation versus Ghost Protocol or Fallout, I'd have no shot or even remember what sequence was in which one. So although I was like, yeah, I totally saw this at the movies and I had a, a good time with it um, because, yeah, great great stunts and, and action set pieces and so on, for the life of me, 
I, I could not recall anything about it. And maybe apart from like the Purge franchise, you know, if I said to you, hey, Ben, how many movies are in the Purge franchise? You could guess anywhere from between, I don't know, three and nine. Sort of the same with Mission Impossible. If you, I said, hey, how many movies are in the Mission Impossible franchise right now? Would you be able to guess off the top of your head? Would you know? I would say five or six, but I couldn't say definitively six because I'm confused by the fact that the last two are from Christopher McQuarrie and I've seen so many press excerpts and heard podcasts of him talking about both those films. In fact, I think he was even a script doctor on the fourth film, Ghost Protocol, that I kind of conflate those last few films, whereas other ones are so clearly distinct films, which we'll get to in our reviews actually. Mm. The first three films are very much auteur-driven films, or at least the first two anyway. And then because you've got like a more familiar style and the same director for the last two and the same writer for the last three, they kind of blend together in my mind. Totally, totally. I would say I would say Ghost Protocol stands out because it was a gap between the third and the fourth film. It was Brad Bird, a lot of hype about him doing his first live action instead of another animation like The Incredibles. And it had those iconic images that really sung an IMAX screening, which was all that stuff set on the Burj skyscraper, where he's basically pulling the glass out and, you know, hanging upside down. That stuff stands out to me more. So I can definitely distinguish that film from the films left and right of it. It's the last two, which just become a bit muddy to me. Right, right. Well, I guess that was me re-watching this. If you'd told me that even in this one, the final set piece was on the Burj Khalifa, I would have been like, sure, I I believe you. Um, and it's odd as well because, man, I love uh, the Tom Cruise-Macquarie team up, but I guess I've watched Jack Reacher about ten times, but all of the Mission Impossible movies I kind of watch once and then move on or don't rewatch. It was fun to rewatch this for the pod, but I kind of didn't recall anything about having seen it at the movies. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I normally don't have much to say in the award for the Memento Award for Moments We Forgot About. There is so much about this film which I forgot about, which is weird because I actually really remembered enjoying this movie. So we'll get to that in the review. But for me personally, I also caught at the movies. I was pretty pumped to see it. I think everyone was blown away by the fourth entry in the franchise, Ghost Protocol, and I was really excited to see it. And, of course, these films now, it's very much about the experience leading up to the release where you hear the latest incident where Tom Cruise has tried to not kill himself by doing something outrageous. And when I heard that he was basically holding onto the edge of a plane and that became an iconic image in some of the posters, I was pumped for that. So, you know, I was there for let's see Tom Cruise. He survived it. Good times. How dangerous was it? Knowing that whatever stunt he's doing, it's with barely any CG at all maybe perhaps wire removal and so on and a bit of background replacement and camera shake. But more or less, it's him doing antics like a stuntman. And I saw it on the big screen in the movies and it was great. I didn't see it on IMAX. I don't think this film was actually shot for IMAX, was it? No idea. I don't like seeing movies at IMAX, so I don't really care. Yeah, I find IMAX too big. That's a whole different conversation. But I think Ghost Protocol was actually shot in that kind of 4 by 3 ratio for some sequences for IMAX. And that was, I guess, the alternative to seeing it in 3D. For me, this was just a good time at the movies, as you'd say, Gabe. Um, it looked great on the big screen, on a regular big screen. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So perhaps we should jump ahead now about five months because later 
on the 6th of November 2015, Spectre was released. And here's its synopsis from IMDb. I'll try and do it in a kind of um, a creepy kind of, um, you know, blow-filled voice, shall I? Like Chris- Without the accent. Like Christoph Waltz's voice? Yeah, actually, I can't do that. Like- I'll just try and do, I'll just do it in a aspiring actor who's 18 out of school and looking to do his first reading at the Surrey Hills Acting Centre. How's that? Great. Like, I, I'm, I am thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me. Let's see if we can get you an agent. <laughs> a cryptic message from James Bond's past sends him on a trail to uncover the existence of a sinister organisation named Spectre. With a new threat dawning, Bond learns the terrible truth about the author of all his pain in his most recent missions. Oh, there you go. Uh, Gabe? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Meh. Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Spectre. Uh, I think I saw this at the Australian premiere. Oh, la-di-da. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think, what's his face, James Bond, old mate, Craigie was there. But were there photographs of you, like on the t- on the on the uh, red carpet, you know, with your legs sort of like at that sort of forty five degree angle, your hands cocked on your hips, just sort of like giving um, um, fuck me eyes to the camera lens? Yeah, yeah. And the Getty caption reads: uh, "Random man stumbles onto photo call. Who is this person? Sure, <laughs> removed by security. You know, <laughs> I have to say that's probably actually the most memorable thing about my recollection of seeing this." movie because sort of like Mission Impossible but, and we'll get to it in the review, less so because this movie is less good. Fuck, I didn't remember, I didn't remember much about this one at all. In fact, weirdly, in retrospect, these movies kind of seem to be just sort of defined by the technical arguments I've had with people online. So the only thing I really remembered about Spectre was the one at the beginning or so-called alleged one but um. So I guess it was kind of fun to rewatch, but man, it, it, these movies that I kind of saw, you know, five or seven years ago, the the anecdotes around them just aren't good. When we do movies from the nineties, it's like bang, we've got we've got stories to tell. But here it's just like, yep, I went along, I plopped down my money, I sat in the chair, I ate the big freezy, uh, munched my popcorn, and then I left. Gabe, tell me about it. I didn't see this under the influence of any substances or alcohol. Oh <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and I cannot remember this movie. I was stunned. So the movie starts and I think, oh, yeah, I recall the discussion about this one the alleged one-shot, which is obviously, I think, three cuts. But, you know, it looks really cool, great colour correction, interesting sound design. Great colour correction. Well, it's very high contrast, a lot of interesting that, – that it very much leans into, I guess, what you call the Mexican aesthetic. You know, uh, Mama Tambien, is it? Oh, I, I thought that was problematic these days, that you're not allowed to tint your South American – or Mexican set scenes with yellow because that's not real. <laughs> you know, so it's like it popped off on Twitter. That shit. You know. You know what? See, the funny thing is, we're in a landscape right now, and you and I agree with all of these uh, movements happening right now. But the fact that you mentioned that, and I wasn't sure if you were joking or not, and someone might say that someone has uh, appropriated the streetscape with a, a fictional aesthetic, a fictional color correction that isn't authentic. It wouldn't surprise me. So is that actually something that someone mentioned on Twitter? Yeah, I can't remember what film it was for. It must have been, maybe it was one of the new Netflix releases. Anyway, there was a bit of a hullabaloo, you know, uh, where they pointed at people just like putting together a photo of like, you know, a, a real Mexican street, which is, you know, obviously not tinted 
tobacco yellow with, oh, but here it is in the movies. I don't know if we're blaming traffic for this, but if we are, I'm sure when we go to Washington, D.C., it'll be a deep, deep blue the whole time. Yeah, every CIA espionage film set around Washington is, a, you know, or Langley, is that cool blue, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Anyway, look, um, I guess that's just one of those things. It feels like kind of the pointy end of a, an argument, the thin wedge of maybe people with a little too much time on their hands. But, hey, I don't know. Yeah, so... Well, back to that one shot at the start. I recall seeing that. I recall the discourse about it, you know, cinematographers and editors talking with great glee about it. And then the film starts. This is the rewatch of it. And I have no recollection of this entire movie. And I'm watching this movie thinking, maybe I never saw this movie at the cinema. And I do recall the time that there were some really bad reviews by podcasters I respect. And I'd reached that point about five years ago where I thought, you know what? I don't need to see a film to be part of the conversation if it's not good. Beforehand, I would have seen it to be part of the conversation to then agree that a film was bad. But around 2005, I thought, you know what? Or 2015, I thought <laughs> I can- Try 10 years off. Yeah, around, around 2015, I thought, you know what? I can just like, to use a James Bond type term, let it let live and just let it go. So I'm watching this film last night in preparation for this pod and I'm realising that I haven't seen this film. But I get to the end, to the final sequence, which I remember, and then I realised I actually did see this film. I probably did see it at the cinema and I have no recollection of it at all, which is kind of alarming because, like you say, back in the 90s, you and I got these fantastic anecdotes of where we were in our life, where we lived, how old we were, what the film was like, what the cinema was like. We kind of enjoyed the experience of the movie itself and then, like, sitting to watch the movie. I have no recollection of the sitting or what went through my eyeballs to consume this particular product, which is alarming. Can, can I throw a little theory at you? And I only just thought of this shoot. right now, so shoot it down. But because these movies, particularly, in fact, these two, are, are making their plots, what would you call them, Se- sequential? No, uh, not sequential. Like, they the one one film's plot directly follows the next, so, you know. And that's the first time in both these series, I think, that they really leaned into that, right? Because before that... Well, no, no, Quantum of Solace picks up right after um, Casino Royale finishes. Ah, oh, you're right. Yeah, but that was... And that was new for Bond, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe they have tiny bits of... Con- but they, they've started to really make it so that if you haven't seen the previous one, you'd have no idea who, you know... Jesper Christensen as Mr. White is, and you'd be confused as hell. Um, but that also makes the movies kind of a wash. Like this is the middle part of like a of like three or five or whatever, and I don't know. Similar to what we were uh, you hinted about with the Mission Impossible series, you know, the first two stand out, I suppose, not just because they have their individual sort of idiosyncratic directors, but they're sort of standalone stories. Now they're just kind of all part of some bigger thing and, I don't know, it sort of makes it feel like they're less memorable or it doesn't matter or they're a stopgap. Like, who cares? Well, this, I think, is the Marvel Cinematic Universe effect, right, where to try and build audience expectation and investment in a story, you try and bring back older characters, you try and tie threads together from previous films that were actually intended to be separate stories uh, to try and give the world more depth. You know, it's that whole... 
world building, which is meant to therefore equal franchise building and a bigger box office. And I agree. I think that's perhaps one of the problems. Like I didn't like in the first two Mission Impossible movies that he dumps the team. Like the whole premise of the TV show, which I didn't actually watch, but, you know, it's that whole men on a mission idea. Like you get the team together Everyone's got a particular set of skills. They're all like their own version of Liam Neeson from Taken, but one's a driver, one's a forger, et cetera, et cetera. Ethan's the leader. And then they abandon that in the first film, subverting your expectations about the whole nature of that intellectual property. They do it again in the second film, where he's basically pretty much solo with only Ving Rhames being the constant returning member for those six movies. But I suppose it then allowed it to be like its own story. He'd basically jump from country to country and meet new people and have a new love interest and so on. But maybe you're right. Maybe that's perhaps one of the problems of linking the films. Having said that, let me say this. It works for Marvel. (laughs) True, very true. It's sort of weirdly, oddly inconsistent in Mission Impossible because now he's got Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames and I guess sort of Rebecca Ferguson, but like, what did Paula Patton and Maggie Q and that dude, Jonathan Reese Myers, do? Like, were they a pack of assholes? Like, oh, I'll, exp- I'll explain that to you in uh, the production methodology in Madness. So, oh, okay. Maybe they were just killed off screen in the, uh, you know, intervening graphic novel or some, you know, extra bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> um, look, before we get into that, let's do a little, quick little history lesson, our little shallow dive into how these two films came about and then we can jump into a review of both movies together. Okay. So, look, it's not a exciting story. Oh, these brilliant. films are both part of a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> the only interesting thing I guess you'd say is that there was a gap between earlier movies but these ones were pretty quickly fast-tracked afterwards. So let's go with Mission Impossible. They came out in 96, 2000, 2006 2012, I think, and this film came out in 2015. So this is where they basically got the engine running again. The only interesting thing about this is that they had to kind of adjust the story because, as you and I have talked about in the past, Ghost Protocol, the fourth entry in the franchise, was intended to be a passing of the baton from Tom Cruise to the new Ethan Hunt-esque character, Jeremy Renner. But... Tom did some great stunts, obviously was reluctant to pass the torch, and that never happened. Yeah, they all saw Bourne Legacy. Oh, I love that film. Uh, We'll We'll park that. I actually- Look, there's some good bits in it. I think that film's actually very underrated. I like Tony Gilroy. It's some great scenes. It's got Ed Norton as a CIA agent. There's more to be said. We need to find a twin movie with that particular movie. I I guess they saw the success of passing, perhaps just the critical and commercial success of trying to pass the- yeah the baton on to someone with arguably less charisma. Sorry, Jeremy. Exactly. No, that's 100% true. Uh, With the James Bond franchise, again, not much to say really. Skyfall was an absolute smash. Most successful film in the franchise's history. Does over $1 billion, which was the first time for a James Bond movie. And in this movie, he comes back, uh, Daniel Craig, for something like It was like allegedly $25 or $30 million or something like that. So a huge paycheck. It was only delayed, though, because Sam Mendes didn't want to return for a second film but eventually was convinced to, which to me said he was paid some sweet, sweet coin. Right. Um, And that's pretty much it. There's nothing more to say, really. There was a few rewrites done on the film. 
Uh, Rogue Nation, I guess, which we'll get to, was rewritten on the fly, but that's it. So let's just jump into our review of these movies. Let's start with Rogue Nation. So, Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you? What didn't float your boat? And is it the best execution of this concept (laughs) where you basically have you being disavowed yet again and you jump from country to country to try and clear your name and find the real baddie. It's interesting you said just then that this movie was written on the fly because um, I think I read an interview with Macquarie and he was saying he, like, scouts locations, thinks of set pieces and then just essentially writes around them. And uh, Yeah, that's right. Apparently it's like what does Tom Cruise want to do that's dangerous, what would look cool, and then it's let, let's write some scenes and character development to link action sequences. <laughs> what does Tom Cruise want to do? I want to go to the opera. Oh, okay. Great. Uh, that's kind of not what I expected, but let's do that. Um, and that's the best sequence in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like a set of sequences strung together with a bit of plot, but um, they're all pretty fun, aren't they? This isn't a bad time at the movies. You know, there he is hanging off a plane. There he is going to the opera. There he is in a giant dishwasher. Okay, can we start with the opening scene with the plane? Great. I don't think it's very good. What do you think? I think it's pretty memorable for uh, TC hanging off the side of a plane. Uh, I couldn't tell you what they're actually trying to do. I can't really remember that. And then then he just gets zooped out the back of the plane on the cargo. Thing. I don't know. Uh, Can I be a voice of reason here or a dissenter? Because everyone else seems to think it's really great that he did that scene, right? Right, okay. He did it for real. He wore special contact lenses, <laughs> eight takes. To stop bugs getting in his eyes? Apparently it's bugs but also just the pressure of the air. <laughs> bugs. So they actually covered his entire eyeball wow. opposed to just covering, you know, the iris. You still have to pick him out of his teeth. <laughs> look, let me just say this. Can I just look at this objectively? If you didn't know that Tom Cruise did that scene for real, would it be as good? And I would say no because I actually think the scene looks like a blue screen scene. It doesn't cut away from him, which is the point to show, look, it actually is Tom Cruise from the minute the plane takes off on the ground to, you know, I don't know, 10,000 feet in the air. We didn't cut away. It's Tom. He's hanging on the whole time. To me, that only works because you know he did it in real life. As a stunt, I don't think it does. I actually think it looks like it's effectively blue screen. They don't cut to any wide shots to sort of show you a sense of scope and scale as to how far he's off the ground. And it's kind of passive. He's just holding on. So I'm going to put it out there that this actually isn't an impressive stunt and it's only impressive because you know the backstory behind the making of. And if you showed, you know, a 13-year-old kid without telling him how this was shot, he'd just go, okay, you know, yep. good good, good blue screen or, or nice holding on. Okay, number one, <laughs> fuck this fictitious 13-year-old kid. Fuck them, they're an idiot. <laughs> because I do know he did it for real, it's sick. Like, you know, when I watch a great fight scene in a movie – and the more I know that the, the actor did the stunts and stuff, the more I'm impressed by that. Like I like the, the part of filmmaking that is, you know, doing the thing as opposed to standing on an Apple box in front of a blue screen or green screen and just having the background keyed in. Like, like if you didn't know he did it, then you've missed out. And if you did, then it's sweet. So... Yeah, I don't know. Look, I guess the reality is in 2015, 2020, the nature of how we consume these stories is that 
everyone knows about what Tom Cruise is doing. Like it's shared through Twitter, it's shared in those film gossip websites where you see him jump from one building to the other building like his last film and he broke his ankle. That's all part of the narrative that essentially he is like Maximus, the Russell Crowe character in Gladiator where he is, you know, doing this for our pleasure. Like, (laughs) do I entertain you? Do I entertain you? He is basically a modern-day Maximus. Okay. You consume this film with the behind the scenes and what's actually on the screen. But we're filmmakers. We appreciate that. For the average 13-year-old kid or the 45-year-old Joe Schmo, and no, you know, no harsh words for Joe Schmoes, but- No, fuck Joe Schmo too. <laughs> Look, Joe Schmo- Do they really care? No, and then, like, that's a problem because in weirdly the exact same way without getting too much into Spectre, the idea, you know, that the opening of Spectre is a one but it's obviously not because there's hidden cuts- that is the equivalent of, of if they had just done Mission Impossible in front of a green screen. It's just not as cool. And, yeah, like your your 13-year-old kid, let's call him uh, uh, Stromane, <laughs> uh, you know, he might be like, wow, that's a really cool one But me, I know and I go, fuck, who gives a shit? That's like uh, two locations and a set at Pinewood or Vinewood or whatever the fuck it's called, you know, like. It's just not as cool as when you do a one for real. And sure, like maybe the Goodfellas uh, Coca-Cabana one is not a giant, you know, uh, Day of the Dead uh, parade, but it's done le- like for real and legit and it's way more memorable. In the same way Rogue Nation, Tom Cruise did it for real, much more memorable, you know. This isn't – if you, look, get your 13-year-old or your 45-year-old on it and have a podcast called like, you know – Dumb shits react, I don't know, and see what they think. But, Ben, we're better than that. We know. <laughs> Actually, give me a great idea for a YouTube channel. <laughs> Dumb shits react. Yeah, look. Dumb shits react. I think it already exists. It's called YouTube. <laughs> look, it's actually very funny or interesting to hear you criticise the artificial nature of the alleged one-shot that feels like a one-shot as an audience viewer at the start of Spectre because you're an editor. Like, you're a guy who I thought would appreciate the invisible cut. No, hate it. Interesting. Why? Uh, Oh, look, I guess for the same reason I just ranted about. I think I like it when it feels like something was done for real and, look, the invisible edit, which isn't that invisible, um, just, I don't know, makes it kind of fake I don't know. We've joked about it before, but fuck, I always appreciate that thing where, you know, Werner Herzog made Fitzcarraldo about a some f- bloke who was going to pull a boat over a mountain, so he pulled a boat over a mountain. Okay, can I put it this way? I myself really get frustrated with bad computer-generated effects. It drives me crazy. Like, those Marvel films are essentially a cartoon because the entire scenes animated, both the background and the characters, and it looks like it. I can't get a sense of gravity or texture and you can tell me till the cows come home how impressive the CG work is, and it is. But then I'll point to, say, Jurassic Park, made in 93, which uses rain and darkness and a combination of puppetry and so on. And to me, it looks more tactile and more effective than those most recent Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movies. So when they do something for real in a movie like Mission Impossible, I appreciate it because to me it actually looks real. However... This particular opening scene, to me, weirdly looks like blue screen. It doesn't look real. It, it, that, that's the funny part about it. Whereas other sequences in this franchise in most recent years, such as the scene shot 
at the is it the Burj Khalifa, that huge skyscraper in Dubai, yeah, or on the edge of a cliff in the subsequent film after this one, Fallout, looks spectacular because it's actually Tom Cruise with a tiny safe but tiny thin little wire as he's fighting Henry Cavill on the edge of a cliff. It's actually a cliff and it looks like a cliff and it's fantastic. And the only thing that to me I find to be effective CG now is that new technology that they're using in the Disney TV series The Mandalorian, which is basically a modern version of rear projection but using a parallax effect when you move the camera that it actually uh, oh, yeah. me looks like it's actually the background and, and lights the characters' faces with like the sunset light totally. of the sunset in the background. And we saw something similar which uh, Joseph Kaczynski, I think his name is, who did Oblivion with Tom Cruise used, which is basically reprojection like giant LCD screens behind sets. That to me looks really good. Well, there's still, there's still CG in the Rogue Nation opening sequence. You know, they've got to do all this wire removal and presumably... And they, did, they actually added camera shake as well. <laughs> right. Because the camera was like locked to that plane. And, you know, those planes are so heavy, the camera's bolted on. It was, looked too static. So they added a bit of jiggle in the frame to make it look like it was sort of like a rougher flight for Tom Cruise. But that's just the funny thing. It, I do love Tom Cruise's stunt work in these movies. I love the stories behind the making of these movies. It's just that that particular stunt didn't take advantage of it. Another example, actually, I think it was Fallout with Henry Cavill where they did that halo jump, right? Oh, yeah. Great example, right? They did the halo jump. The camera goes out with Tom Cruise. Apparently Tom Cruise and the cameraman, cameraman knew each other so well and that they knew exactly the one metre distance that to be to keep his face in focus as they're falling at some ridiculous speed. But if you look at the behind the scenes and the way it's also cut, they replace all the sky entirely. They replace- Oh, uh, yeah, with that stupid thunderstorm. Yeah, and they replace the landscape and then just as they're reaching the- Bad idea. Ground, where you actually then want to see the ground speed towards you, towards Tom Cruise, they kind of cut to this weird- artificial shot of him and Henry Cavill landing on the rooftop of the building like they're being lowered, you know, by a crane or something. And I just thought, again, you had the opportunity to really take advantage of the legend of Tom Cruise doing a halo jump and then you just used so much CG and you cut it in a way that you couldn't even appreciate the stakes of it. That's my issue there. Yeah. I, look, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, tell me, what else did you like or dislike about it and – did it sort of like advance this whole idea of the disavowed agent? Because I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of these six movies, he's been disavowed for five of them and it's only the second movie directed by John Woo where he actually was doing a legitimate uh, mission for IMF. Yeah, I don't know. Is he? Is we're, he? we're going around the merry Yeah, he is apparently. That's what IMD tells me. So we're going around this merry-go-round again of Ethan Hunt being disavowed for the fourth time in this movie, is this the best execution of this particular conceit? Well, bloody hell, the International Monetary Fund needs to do a better job of avowing their agents, don't they? Like, fuck. Um, if you'd asked me, I would have assumed that he'd been disavowed for them all and, you know, he's just... But what's he looking for in this? Like, this is the funny thing about both of these movies. I can't never... Uh, another doc list. Exactly. Uh, another list of agents. Uh, I, I mean, how many doc lists are there or knock lists or secret lists of agents? I'm always confused. Um, I, actually, you know what? As you ask me, 
I can't even remember. I think what that character Lane wants. I, I mean, both of these are about both of these two films, Spectre and Rogue Nation, are about discovering that there's actually a big shadowy organization that's been pulling all of the strings all of the time. But beyond that, I don't know. What did I like though? Uh, I I like the opening sequence. I like the opera sequence. I think at the time everyone sort of praised that as a great bit of filmmaking and it's probably the most low-key set piece in this film and I think it's probably the most effective. It's pretty great scored to the song, uh, to the to the opera track and um, I love Sean Harris. Oh, but before you leave that particular scene, okay. I think that's actually one of the best Stunt sequences. I'll get back to you, Sean. <laughs> I love you, Sean. They did, actually did for the next film. Yes. That particular scene at the opera I think is one of the most effective action sequences in the franchise's history. And I'll tell you why. Tell me. It's a great example, a bit like we've spoken before of the Act 3 of, what's that Brad Pitt film? World War Z. World War Z, where essentially you don't try and top things, you know, up and up and up with yet another plane taking off that he has to try and jump on. It just lowered the stakes and it was a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. The way they used those lowering, uh, what, what, what do you call those? L- lighting grid? The, the lighting grid, yeah. The scaffolding? Yeah, and the way that that's all motorised and computerised these days and then with a little bit of a bug and a tweak, they're moving around. It's a bit like, you know, Tetris with people. And it was just fun. Like it had a sense of humour. It takes advantage of the idea that Tom Cruise actually is quite a short ass and <laughs> pits him against a basically a James Bond Jaws-esque character, you know, a giant hulking six-foot-four character, and then, like, plays that out as to how that would actually work. Like, essentially it's, you know, the – what's that biblical story I'm drawing a blank on? You know, the tall guy and the small guy with the little rock. David and Goliath. Yeah, I just forgot the most obvious example uh, for that particular story. Jesus? No, no, it was David and Goliath. Oh, okay, yes. It does it really well and, you know, it's interesting and the music's working. Like I love when you can have, do you refer to it as diegetic music? Diegetic, yeah. Yeah, diegetic music where the score is also in the scene and as they're fighting it seems to be kind of choreographed to the music being played in the movie, in the opera. And they've got those great macro shots of the music like the the music, what do you what do you call when music's written on a page? Music sheet? I don't know, whatever. But you know, it pans along those. Oh man, Sam's gonna hate us when he edits this. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, to the point where you know, there's the red circle. Ah, oh, it's great. It's great. And they're just big, giant macro shots of music notes. And it sort of feels to me like a really tightly wound watch. Like there are different cogs and pieces. You've got like. Uh, Benji's doing something over here. Ethan's fighting the big hulking guy. You've got Ilsa Faust, you know, lining up her shot. And I think there's even someone else as well. And so- oh, Yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the Euro trash guy in Speed Dealer Shades. <laughs> like- <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got all these various elements all happening simultaneously. Something I really loved actually about what J.J. Abrams did in Mission Impossible 3, which I think is a really underrated Mission Impossible film that, you know, I talk about quite a lot. And uh, so, just won't shut up about it. And so these are all happening at the same time and it then all comes together beautifully at the end. Um, I think it's just a really great scene. And people did reference that scene being very Hitchcockian. And I think it I think so because it's like lower stakes, no CG, and which is the I can't recall, but there's definitely a Hitchcock film which escapes me where you actually it's either set at an opera. 
I think it's the one where there's like a sort of, isn't there like a sort of note that might be played and that causes the execution of someone? I'm drawing a blank. I'm really embarrassed to say, but it's very Hitchcockian in that way. I don't know. Notorious? Marnie? I'm not sure. Could be Notorious. Anyway, Sam will correct us. Sam, if you can recall that particular Hitchcockian reference, just drop it in now. I don't know. Um. What else did you like and what else didn't you like? Well, I think Rogue Nation basically peaks there. The rest of it's fine, but I don't know. It's all sort of... But weirdly, these two twin movies share a lot in common in that regard because I think Spectre peaks about halfway through as well, um, although much more limply. Um, what are your thoughts on the underwater sequence where, again, behind the scenes, Tom Cruise learned to hold his breath for six minutes? What? Yep. How's that scene work for you? Wow. Uh, well, I would say for me, I would have the how you feel about the opening of this, which I don't agree with. I would probably feel about this because why did he need to learn to do that? I don't think there's any six-minute-long shot in this. No, there's not. And essentially it was cut many times. I think there was originally ambition to do it as a one to take advantage of him learning to hold his breath, but they didn't. So, eh, it didn't really pay off. They should have used that somehow better, like had someone hold Ethan Hunt's head underwater in just like a shallow bucket for five and a half minutes and you just have to sit there watching it and you're like, wow, this is pretty impressive the way he can hold his breath and then he doesn't die. Actually, I know you're kind of joking, but quite seriously, that'd be a great example of really just uh, affordable tension. Like if I saw that in an indie movie, I'm looking at my watch and this is the longest six minutes of all time and you don't cut away. It feels... Very much like a Michael Haneke film, like I'm thinking uh, Funny Games, you know, lock the camera off and a character is emotionally or physically tortured in real time. That would actually be, I think, more tense and take advantage of this whole idea where you often see Ethan Hunt or James Bond on a chair, handcuffed with their arms behind the chair, being interrogated. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hadn't actually heard that behind the scene thing. So this, this sequence didn't. It's it's okay. I, again, like I watched this movie yesterday and I probably couldn't tell you what they were trying to get like, and why this syndicate has their USB disc stored underwater. I don't know. Why did Tom Cruise want to do this? It, it was very James Bond. The whole idea that, well, it's meant to be some sort of cooling centre or whatever. You know, it's all very elaborate. Uh. I mean, when that was described, I thought, oh, here we go. This sounds very James Bond where... Apparently, this supercomputer is the only supercomputer in the world that requires this particular underwater structure to cool it down, whereas ordinarily you just would, I don't know, use air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the sequence in the very first Mission Impossible, you know, where he just descends from the roof, much, much, much more tense and memorable. Um, and for that, I'm sure Tom Cruise just had to learn to balance yeah, I mean, that's interesting that that's actually a particular sequence. I think they've repeated three or four times. And I think Jeremy Renner did that version of that particular manoeuvre in the previous film, Ghost Protocol. Oh, did he? I don't remember. Yeah, um, nor do I. I read that. Again, oh, yeah, okay. it wasn't particularly rem- memorable. And I'm sorry, Jeremy Renner. I think Tom Cruise did it first better and originally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. You, just Poor Jeremy. He's very forgettable in these 
movies. I don't think he really ever gets to do anything very cool. No, he basically plays the killjoy. He's basically the whining character. And so I think if I want to crit- criticise this film, I would say that he's a wasted character. I feel that they kept him because of the legacy they set up in Ghost Protocol, but they could have just have easily dropped him as a character. Um, I do want to give massive props and a shout-out to Rebecca Ferguson's oh, she's, and her character Isla Faust. She's very good. She's good. Cool name too. Yeah, she's cool. Her name's cool. There's an award coming up for her, so Isla, stand by. No, no, Luther Stickle. Anyway, go on, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, her character is active. Her character is cool. Her character is sexy but also athletic, which is something you don't see in Spectre at all. Like this character is attractive but not in the – super, super, supermodel attractive way that they often cast in a James Bond movie. Um, she's athletic and gutsy and active and not a passive character. She saves James Bond rather than being the damsel in distress in that scene underwater. Um, she's just got great chemistry on screen with everyone, including, including Tom Cruise. I don't know how they cast a role like this with such an unknown character, sorry, unknown actor, because it, it is such a risk, but they did see her in The White Queen, a TV series, and thought she was great. And she's fantastic, but it's such a risk, but, God, it pays off. And so these films can be so conservative in every way with their storytelling and how adventurous they want to be, but I really admire when they do cast outside the box. And this film is actually cast like Paula Patton in Ghost Protocol. She was fantastic, you know. Again, not a recognisable actress before that to the wider, you know, filmmaking community really active, powerful on screen. So, yeah, massive props to her. And maybe that's the point, Gay, where she jumped to Spectre because that female character is terrible. Yeah, you're right. And, yeah, I mean, Rebecca Ferguson is great. And I suppose that's just because Christopher Macquarie gave her something to do. All Leah Sadu does in Spectre is hold James Bond hand as he walks through weird desert bad guy bases while he just shoots people. She And just... Just a really, really dull character. Um, a lot of people joked when Spectre came out, like, why'd they kill Monica Bellucci's character off? I think she dies, doesn't she? Um, <laughs> I can't even recall. I watched it last night. I can't recall. But her, it feels her char- like yeah. five weeks ago. Her, her character um, has a lot more verve or something. Um, people said, oh, she's much closer to Daniel Craig in age and is an age-appropriate Bond girl or whatever. And, yeah, sure, totally great. Um, uh I'm 100% for that. But it just felt like that character had personality. God, poor Leah Sadu is just saddled with this. I mean, everyone in the movie is kind of dull. Well, apparently Sam Mendes cast her because he wanted a more experienced actress than the previous Bond girl in Skyfall, who, again, I can't even recall. So he thought this was a step up, that she was on screen more mature and that'd be a step in the right direction which goes to show you how low the bar was for that particular female character. <laughs> but all all of them are dull. Like Daniel Craig is a pretty good Bond, but, God, he's dull. You know, Rafe Fiennes as M is kind of dull. The only character who I think has a little bit of, um, you know, personality is Ben Whishaw as Q, you know. I like it when he turns up, but, you know, Dave Bautista as some villain is dull. They, I guess they did that thing... You know, where in the last Bond before this, Javier Bedem could take his, like, jaw out or something and his head all sagged. Kind of fun. But, like, give Dave Bautista, and look, maybe he had them and I forgot, give him, like, metal fingers or something. Like, where's the 
Where's the joy in any of these movies? God, they just made this one just a slog. Don't you think the problem was this? They had various eras of Bond. We get to Daniel Craig in 2006, right? We get our New Zealand director coming on board and he does basically a born opening action sequence and they basically born him up. They basically ground the character. He's got this hulking physique with these huge traps. He's not the sort of dapper character we saw played by Pierce Brosnan. And it's the more naturalistic, jaded, you know, 2000s James Bond, right? Totally, totally. He's not surfing into North Korea or whatever. No, you know, the action scenes are grounded. They sort of introduced free running, which you'd seen in French films before that. Parkour. And they went for like, you know, a more grounded Bond with more naturalistic set pieces with Daniel Craig actually doing a lot of stunts. And the fight work was closer to the Bourne series. Right. Then the film kind of goes, okay, let's just try and bring back some of the gadgets. So they start kind of bringing back some of the Bond elements. Then I think it peaked in, in Skyfall where they basically had the perfect balance. They had this incredible looking film, which looked just like a, can- a beautiful canvas shot by Roger Deakins. Um, they had a bit of backstory in humanity. It was still gritty in some elements, but it kind of was doing a lot more of the globe trotting that Bond was famous for. And then I think they basically ran out of runway. They basically went, well, what do we do? And they basically reverted to a 1980s Bond. Like, let's look at this film, right? The female character is passive, a love interest way too quickly, doesn't seem to have her own set of special Liam Neeson skills and is a cliched Bond girl and significantly younger than James Bond. Christopher Waltz is hamming it up as he always does uh, as a typical kind of Eastern European or Western European baddie. You've got the gadgets heavily used like we used to have beforehand, the classic watch gadget. Dave Batista playing the character of Hinks has one line which is, Shit. Oh, I thought it was- In the entire- Eep. Eep. Yeah. That's that's right. And he's basically just playing, I mentioned earlier, the character of Jaws from a Roger Moore movie. You know, that just uh, silent type baddie with no kind of- But Jaws had big metal teeth and Jaws himself had a love interest. He had the, 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 the girl with the pigtails. Jaws got an arc. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying- yeah, that's true. But what what I'm saying is I think they kind of basically went right back. And so, so this film to me doesn't resemble anything like the Bourne-esque reboot they did in 2006. And I think it became just too extravagant, like too many locations. Like when we ended up in Tangier, I'm like, oh, really? Like seriously, we're in Tangier and Morocco? Like you're only in Morocco to try and make us think of Casablanca and the, the famous movie. Tangier just reminds me of where Bourne shot like 10 years before this. Like you do that whole juxtaposition of a snow scene cut to a scene in North Africa. It just felt kind of cliched. Like I hate to say this, but I actually think this film suffers from way too much globetrotting. Uh, and I, I, again, I can't remember the plot. And I tried so desperately to lean into this whole idea of Blofeld, Christopher Waltz's character, is the, quote, author of his pain to try and have this world building going on. Um, and that he's Bond's brother? You know, uh, well, I guess I guess sort of brother, stepbrother-esque character. God, you didn't need that fucking hat on a hat. Yeah, exactly. Was a hat on a hat. So, uh, you know, like to me, this film needs a reboot, this series. I mean, to me the next logical thing is here, you switch out Daniel Craig for a start, but I don't know, I kind of feel like 
this is the film where you perhaps do get Naomi Harris to take on the second Bond role, um, either in this film or or be a temporary Bond or something. Like she is a fantastic actress. She can do action. She's been wasted since day one in this series. Um, and I don't know. I just felt this film felt extremely tired despite an extravagant budget, incredible colours on screen, incredible vistas. It just felt it like a lack of vitality. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up budget and, look, I guess we'll bite off a little bit of what we usually talk about later, but holy shit, the budget of this thing was between 250 and $300 million, right? That is insanely huge budget. And there's some pretty big set pieces, but God damn, this movie does not look like it costs $300 million. You know that explosion you see where they escape Blowfield's lair and they're about to fly off in a helicopter and they turn to face the place where Chris Waltz's character eventually gets his scar and it explodes. That is the most expensive explosion in a movie in history. Wow, okay. Uh, which you barely see, which you kind of see over their shoulders and it only lasts about five seconds. The scene you see where the Joker walks away from the exploding hospital in The Dark Knight is ten times more effective and would have cost 10%. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about The Losers a couple of weeks ago and I'm not bringing it up because it's a fantastic movie or anything, but it had a $40 million budget. Sorry to interrupt you, Gabe, but The Losers actually had a $25 million budget, making the discrepancy in value for money even greater. Carry on. Million dollar budget. You know, and it is not... The the set pieces in that... Are, are not as huge as Spectres, but, you know, for almost one-tenth of the price, one-eighth, one one-seventh of the price, it's insane how much this movie costs. And, yeah, maybe maybe they just gave $20 million to Craig and $20 million to Sam Mendes and $120 million to Dave Batista. Um, but it just, you know, the, the only set piece I ever really remember from this is the one where he's flying down the... The, the side of the mountain in the plane which wings get knocked off and even there it's like fucking hell how did how did this cost so much and they probably shot for like 400 days or something you know with 50, six 50 foot techno cranes on standby all day every day and you know the most marvelous craft service you ever dang see well the worst part is they actually had plans originally to shoot this back to back with Skyfall back in 2012 which is be as, as insane as shooting the two Matrix sequels back-to-back and right. doing that just sucks the life out of a movie. Like, it's too much. Yeah. Well, Daniel Craig didn't want to cut his cut his wrist with broken glass. <laughs> they are like, no, oh, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to cut my wrist with broken glass. Being, being James Bond is like working in the mines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is funny. I don't feel that he's jaded from the fictional character's arc in this series, he just seems jaded as an actor. <laughs> but the fictional movie. character's arc is kind of stupid. Like, I, uh, I'm not the first person to point this out, but in the first Casino Royale, he's a new agent. By the second one, he's already over it. You know, like the character went from uh, the the um, the new kid to to burnt out and cynical in like one movie. I've got an idea for a sequel as to how this should be rebooted, which we can get to in that award, because I agree, they basically peaked way too soon. And one of the problems they have with this film, I think, is that 
they have him as the same person. And there's a theory out there that with each new actor coming in, they're taking on the identity of a spy called James Bond, which to me is so much more interesting than doing this swap of, of a real of a different actor to play the same character. Because if you actually allow it to be a cover, James Bond is the cover name, 007 is the cover identity for the best spy for the job at that time, then you can actually go in all sorts of different directions because you've got a different character. And they might share similar traits such as being a drinker and a seducer and so on. But you could also play against that. Like perhaps women might assume he's a seducer and he's not for one movie or something like that. Like that's the problem they've got is that it's such an archetype of a character that you'd have to have a film that's self-contained and then you sort of follow that same character who doesn't grow at all and people grow around him, which is often a trend of some movies where the character is an influence of change rather than change themselves. Or you do what they're doing, which is trying to like link all these movies together. But then, of course, you kind of like run out of growth because you don't know how many films you're plotting for. So you're not sure how much of the emotional elastic band of the character you can stretch to be able to kind of spread an arc over a unknown number of movies. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess in the first one, you know, there was the sort of somewhat controversial scenes or whatever where he has a sook in the shower after he's done himself a murder. By now, Craig Bond has killed probably 14,000 people or whatever. Uh, what does Gandolfini say in True Rants? Now he does it just to see their expressions changed. You can't, you can't, you can't have a big old cry anymore. You can just be like a killing automaton, you know. Uh, so... Like, you can't really go anywhere in that direction with the character. He's got over Vesper Lynn or whatever Eva Green's character was called. You know, there's this little bit in Spectre where he looks at the tape, says Vesper Lynn interrogation and tosses it away, has a little think, little little reminisce, little Richard Gere look out the window. But I don't know. Look, the other thing is I don't really want to – I don't watch James Bond movies for character development anyway. I don't really care about that in these – movies. I don't really care about continuity. I I guess I like the Bonds where every Bond girl, as it were, was sort of one and done. Every mission was the new end of the world mission as if the previous one did or didn't happen, didn't really matter. Maybe you'd have a tiny bit of continuity with like Michael Madsen or Jeffrey Wright or that hillbilly sheriff from the... But I just, I just don't care about them linking these movies. I kind of want them to both be more forgettable and then somehow at the same time be more memorable because of their disposability. So I don't know what the fuck I want. All right, let's try and work out our pitch for our sequel down the track. Perhaps we should just quickly jump to our combined review. So let's start with notable similarities, coincidence or ripoff. So this is the second time since 2006 that the James Bond franchise and the MI entry have been released in the same year. Because, of course, back in 2006, MI3 and Casino Royale were both released at the same time. I think that's just coincidence. I don't think these films have been in a race against each other particularly. So, yep, I'll put that down to just happenstance. Uh, The other coincidence is, and this goes to show how much these movies have blurred in my mind, not just in the same franchise but across franchises, of course – it's pronounced Lee Sadu, right? Leia Sadu. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Leia Sadu. Of course, she was actually the character Dr. Madeline Swan 
in Ghost Protocol. So she's jumped from 2011's Ghost Protocol to 2015's Spectre. Doesn't seem like a smart idea. No, but I look. Oh, sorry, I should rephrase that. Her character was actually called Sabine Maru in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So, Sabine Maru? That's like a Star Wars name. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, well, okay. Uh, if both movies are about shadowy organizations um, led by mysterious, uh, you know, villains, Sean Harris. I brought him up earlier. I want to talk about him now versus um, Christoph Waltz. Who do you go for as uh, uh, villainous bad guys heading organisations that start with the letter S? <laughs> well, we did talk before about our idea of having this Record Like Ralph style espionage crossover universe. So if we've got Leah to do in both movies, potentially playing the same character, both different names because, of course, spies do that, maybe – Lane works for Blofeld or vice versa. And perhaps there's perhaps an opportunity for Spectre and the Syndicate to come together as a ultimate synergy, a joint venture, if you will. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All right. Which film has aged better, Gabe? Rogue Nation or Spectre? Uh, I think Rogue Nation. Um, I think interestingly comparing them, there's something I like about Rogue Nation more, which is or the Mission Impossible franchise broadly, is they're just a little bit more fun. They're not comedies in any sense of the word, but, you know, like Ethan Hunt feels like he gets in shenanigans and fucks stuff up and does like, uh-oh, faces a bunch. I'm there for that. And that sort of lighter touch I think makes them feel just a little bit more breezy uh, and gives them a little bit more... Uh, on-shelf longevity. I think that's a recent thing, though. I don't think that Tom Cruise was doing, oh, SpaghettiOs, faces for the first three MI3s, three MI movies. But maybe but maybe the third one, definitely not the second one. He was doing slow-mo hair whips, which is also awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it was basically when Brad Bird, who has a sense of humour, comes in for number four, and same with Macquarie, you do actually see him going, uh-oh, and then, of course, you can also cut to Benji doing uh-oh, uh-oh as well. Well, I could I could maybe do less of that. But um, <laughs> Whereas but, but, you don't see that from but, James Bond's character as much at all. No. Like there's no. A one or two moments where he might go, oh, shit. But it's it's a rare thing. Like the scene where he fights the character Hinks, if that was done, in, which is a Dave Batista character, I think we've seen the same scene played out in – Rogue Nation, where he looks at this giant guy and goes, oh, shit, and punches him, and Punch does nothing, and you see Tom Cruise go, uh-oh, whereas the same scene with a big giant character, Inspector, you don't see a moment where Daniel Craig goes, uh-oh, he just basically gets his ass whipped. No, we need more uh-ohs. And interesting, I guess, like we said, both of these movies are directors returning to franchises um, where they've directed previous entries. and No, no, not this one, not I- Rogue Nation. This was the first one directed by Macquarie, yeah. Oh, isn't it? He came on to do a bit of extra writing. Fuck, see, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> you just can't remember. So it's, so he's done two now, not three. Correct. Oh. But he actually penned part of Ghost Protocol but wrote all of the last two. Uh, there you go. There you go. Well, I guess... Bond also has had directors who've done more than one entry and so on. But with with any of these franchises, I like it when they bring in people who slap some kind of a 
imprimatur on their movies. So, you know, both of them, as we've talked about, have sort of genericized themselves a little bit. So in terms of which one has aged better, as as we've said, it's hard to remember what happens in any of them or which which number in their respective franchises some of these movies are. So have they've both they've both existed in a status and not age, but also aged terribly because fuck knows. Well, on that note, I reckon we should tie a bow on the review and jump to a bit of trivia. What do you say? Oh, I love a bit of trivia. <laughs> okay. So I mentioned before the eight takes it took a Mission Impossible Rogue Nation to have Tom hold onto the side of an Airbus A400M. Uh, a few other little tiny little details. He was injured six times during the making of this particular movie. Surprise, surprise. The stunt coordinator told Simon Pegg that Tom Cruise was going to do all the driving because he didn't have a better driver than him, which kind of feels like a sort of thing they drop in press notes because it sounds good and they love saying that like, oh, look at Tom, 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 Tom. True. Love Tom. Another one, Tom was struck in the body by a small pebble <laughs> while filming one of the takes from the plane. Oh. But apparently it hurt so badly he thought he was seriously injured, but actually it got caught in his clothes and he was okay. Wow. And that's how they've described it. If I was PRing that, I wouldn't have called it a small pebble. What about a rock? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, now, jumping across to uh, Spectre, holy moly guacamole. There is about... I don't know. It feels like about 20,000 words of trivia on this film. So I'm not going to go into all of it. Um, but look, most of it kind of, you can kind of see on screen. Daniel Craig complained about getting fit because at 47, it was getting harder to maintain those, you know, those abs. Um, Spectre, they were able to use as a, an entity for the first time because a legal dispute regarding the rights to that had been resolved. That's why it hadn't appeared beforehand. So it felt like an opportunity was made to try and, you know, incorporate some of the heritage into this movie. Which is which is weird because it felt like they were setting up, because they couldn't use Spectre, a different version of that in the second one. Quantum? I don't know. But then, then when the rights come, they just abandon that one and switch to this one and I don't know. Who cares? Yep, I agree. I agree. Uh, we mentioned earlier the one I was done in three shots. Uh, this was the film after Skyfall to go back to 35 mil. Oh, nice. Surprisingly. Nice. So different DOP, uh, whereas Skyfall was shot all on digital. Uh, Pierce Brosnan had thoughts. He thought the film was way too long and just to sort of like, you know, make it shorter and sharper. Uh, apparent- wait, 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 Pierce Brosnan? Yeah. Do they, do they check in with Pierce Brosnan after every Bond movie? I guess so, yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you think of this one, Pierce? <laughs> oh, it's not bad. Uh, Dave Batusta is a fourth actor with a professional wrestling background to play a James Bond villain, following the footsteps of Harold Sakata in Goldfinger in 64, Peter Fanine in You Only Live Twice in 67, and Pat Roach in Never Say Never Again in 83. Yeah, there you go. Pierce, Pierce is right, by the way. These Bond movies are getting longer and longer. Oh, totally. I agree. I agree. The next one's apparently two hours and 45 minutes long. Wow. Like, fucking hell. This movie also shares the same shooting locations as Living Daylights in 87, which include Tangier, Morocco, London, England, and Austria. See, there you go. This is the problem. You know, back in 87, they're jumping to these same countries, and here we are again doing the same thing, with Bourne having done it just beforehand. It's too much. Too much, Gabe. Cut down on the frigor of fire points. They love Tangier, don't they? Tangier is one of those places that 
they always mention in movies, but I swear to God, no one's ever been to, apart from maybe people from Tangiers. But apart from that, doesn't exist. It's a fake place. It exists only in the minds of location scouts and and movie subtitles and you know. Morocco. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, you're gonna love this. Casting order shoulda couldas. Let's start with Rogue Nation. Gabe, you'd be surprised to hear, or maybe not, that Jessica Chastain was the first choice to play the female lead, declined because she did not like the prospect of spending up to six months training for the role. Yeah. She went and did Dark Phoenix instead. Would that have been a better film with Jessica Chastain? Nah. Rebecca Ferguson is amazing. I mean, I love Chastain and she was great in Zero Dark Thirty. I could see how it's a very short trip in the mind of the casting director from Zero Dark Thirty to Rogue Nation. But you know what? Ferguson pulled it off and everyone loved her for it. So better choice in the end. You did mention earlier some of the female characters dropping out. Allegedly, Paula Patton and Maggie Q from Ghost Protocol and MI3 respectively both dropped out due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, Like dropped out of all of the preceding Mission Impossible movies? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. It feels like, it feels like spin because I'm just surprised they didn't try and bring them both back. But there you are. And that's surprising because they actually were both great in both films, particularly Paula Patton. Yeah, totally. I I don't know. Maybe maybe Maggie Q's a huge asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's not. She's fucking great. She's really good in the- she's- No shots fired. Just speculating. She, she couldn't. <laughs> tons of, like, who knows? And the last little detail is that apparently they wanted Brad Bird to return to helm the follow-up, but he declined to shoot Tomorrowland. Ooh, ouch. Not a good choice. And Macquarie was brought in by the film's producers at Tom Cruise's request. Yeah, right. They, I presume, without looking it up, they had done um, Jack Reacher before this, right? Exactly. So they already had a bit of a second-hand yeah. relationship together. Well, and Macquarie had been rewriting... Tons of, st- I mean, since Valkyrie with um, Brian Singer, uh, that yeah, 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 exactly. You know, he's like he's like TC's pocket writer. He did Edge of Tomorrow, which is great, and all of these movies. I think he's punched up yeah. to- uh, Top Gun Two and everything. But a big jump though from doing Way of the Gun, his maligned uh, debut back in what 2001? Uh big jump in time, but obviously. Jack Reacher kind of put him back in the driving seat, excuse the pun, and gave obviously Cruz enough trust in him. And I suppose these days too, they surround themselves with the best stunt people, the best DOPs and so on to visualise the movie. And I guess he just has to make sure that it works as a story. Totally. But do you think do you think Daniel Craig is going on location scouts like Tom Cruise is? No way, man. No way, indeed. Although he did get a co-producing credit, so... He apparently was quite elated by that, so I'm thinking he did more than he had done before. But I agree. There's no way that Daniel Craig, from what the press says, is designing his own set pieces, learning how to fly helicopters, learning how to fly planes, you know, jumping from Tangier to Morocco in pre-production. He's there for the sweet, sweet cash. Yeah. And speaking of helicopters, just while we're on it, the way he pilots that helicopter in the opening of Spectra above a giant crowd of people, what an asshole! I'd have fired fucking James Bond's ass for that. Yeah, totally. That could have been so fatal. I know. I agree. Very unsafe. You know. Now speaking, at least when Tom Cruise is fanging it around in choppers, he's doing it out in the, out in the bloody wilderness. It's the man. It's the man of steel, or the what do you call it? The Batman v Superman rule, isn't it? Do it on a deserted island. That's right. What a chump. Now, Spectre, speaking of uh, directors beforehand, apparently Christopher Nolan was seriously considered to direct Spectre until Sam Mendes decided to come back, which is interesting because 
the producer, the associate producer, Greg Wilson, said that Nolan would have been a dream choice for a future Bond. But the funny thing is, I think you'd agree with this, right, Gabe? Nolan's already made his Bond film, Inception. Like he's done that. Like if you look at Inception, <laughs> particularly that sequence with the guys on skis with machine guns, which is very much a Bond trope from the 80s. I sort of feel he's already done that. And with the upcoming Tenet film as well, which looks very Bondish as well, I reckon the issue there would be that he don't he perhaps couldn't bring anything new or wouldn't be allowed to bring anything new to the role. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean the tone of Spectre feels very Nolan-esque anyway. It's very sort of self-serious and I don't know. And also too, really hard to follow up on Skyfall. I know Christopher Nolan wouldn't be short in confidence, but Skyfall was such a loved film, did well at the box office, looks beautiful, has an interesting story arc with the character of M. I can just imagine them going, you know what, I think, you know, don't try and compete with that film, go and do something else, which he did. That's right, that's right. And look, Sam Mendes lets people sit down on set. <laughs> we know that's BS. Anyway. Yeah, I know, that whipped around stupid-ass Twitter as well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, last casting woulda, shoulda, couldas for Spectre. Gary Oldman was approached for the role of Franz Obenhauser slash Blofeld, but was unwilling to commit to six months of production. That's interesting because, I mean, Waltz, we haven't really talked about Waltz, so maybe now's a very quick segue, but he's just doing Christopher Waltz and without like the kind of panache of Tarantino's writing, it's just kind of like a limp Waltz. All right, save that for the Chewing the Scenery Award. Because I want to hear that in detail. But he's he's not even chewing it enough. No. Well, you know? So I can't even give it to him. Maybe the problem is, is that Tarantino just gives him these giant thick steaks to chew on of dialogue and he gets to really lean into his accent and he gets the right camera shots to take advantage of his, you know, figurative moustache twirling and so on. And just the combination of Tarantino's dialogue and Christopher Waltz's acting works in those particular films which aren't particularly naturalistic. But in this film, I agree. I, I feel it's they've hired him to basically, you know, read out the lines. There's not much to chew on. Maybe that's a good thing given how much he chews. Yeah, it's like they they didn't write a character for him. They just dropped him in and said, Christopher Waltz will bring enough, yeah. you know, waltziness to waltz on by, you know. Well, Gabe, perhaps you would have preferred the alternative choice who was targeted to be the play the main villain which was Kevin Spacey. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I could imagine him as the head of a shady um, organisation that has its uh, uh, fingers in uh, a lot of uh, illegal pies. If you will. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, undercooked pies. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently there were production delays for uh, this film and also there were scheduling conflicts with him playing Richard III on stage. So I saw that production. Did you? Yeah. Was he in it? He was in Richard III. Yeah, it was fine. All right. Okay, interesting. Um, Andrew Scott, who plays C, allegedly replaced, and I always mispronounce his name, Chiwetel. Oh, Chiwetel Elijah Four. Elijah Four. But apparently, Elijah Four cost too much and Scott cost a million less. What? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and allegedly, hmm. uh, Elijah Four was also considered for the role of Blowfield too. Okay, I would have maybe thought that would be more interesting, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I would have. I would agree because I think he's generally playing a good character. So to play and play a villain would be fantastic. Uh, and he plays a 
greyish character in the Charlize Theron film The Old Guard, and he's good. It's the first time I've seen him play a baddie. Uh, so I would have preferred- I haven't seen it, Ben. Spoilers, bro. I've been too busy watching The Floor is Lava. Oh, shit. Sorry. You find out pretty quickly in the movie. Okay. Oh, okay. Let's jump ahead. Spot the Aussie. Couldn't spot any. You? Uh, no. I did not spot any Australians. Okay. Moving on. Big Trouble and Little Production. Uh, in Rogue Nation, Sean Harris, you know- I love Sean Harris. Star of many indie films, a lot of theatre- a guy who probably doesn't get paid a lot of cash for his work because he doesn't want to do those big movies. He originally agreed to appear as villain Solomon Lane on the proviso that his character be killed as he didn't want to be in any sequels. So, sure thing, the ride director Macquarie and TC agreed, but they couldn't find a way to dispose of the character that felt narratively satisfying. So they decided him to be captured instead with no plans to reappear. But then during the last few days of filming Rogue Nation, both Macquarie and Cruz had the idea that the next film would revolve around Hunt having to try and break Lane out of prison. So basically, Sean Harris was really pissed off that not only was he not being killed as he originally had asked, but he would then have to come back for the next movie. <laughs> but, I mean, it's kind of cool, and I guess look, both of these movies do this, but they don't kill their major villains off. I mean, Spectre, obviously, because he's Blofeld and you want to keep... Blofeld around or whatever. But, you know, usually in the Mission Impossible movies, the bad guy falls off something high and dies, you know. It's kind of neat that they just capture him in a little box. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really awesome. Um, although, weirdly, again, I confuse these movies because isn't there another movie where he's running through Paris and he slides down into a hole in the ground and Ving Rhames is there in a boat and catches him and they drive off? Very similar. It, that's the next one, isn't it? Yeah, again, these films just blur together. No. All right, marketing methodology, madness and missteps. So Rogue Nation, the subtitle of the film, Rogue Nation, caused a small conflict between Paramount Pictures and Disney, which announced its Star Wars spin-off, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, at the same time. So both production companies came to an agreement. In exchange for the use of the title, Disney wouldn't promote or release any promotional materials of its own film until Rogue Nation was released. Don't you hate it? when you pay money to see a Star Wars movie but you accidentally see a Mission Impossible movie? <laughs> I guess they just don't trust the audience. No, no, because they're 15-year-old and 45-year-old numbskulls <laughs> um, who will be soon on Ben's new podcast <laughs> talking of idiots or whatever it was called. I can't remember. Uh, you also mentioned uh, the budget of Spectre. Dumb shits react. <laughs> you also mentioned the budget of Spectre. Apparently... Um, it wasn't actually three fifty US million dollars or plus three hundred million. In the end, it ended up being about two hundred and forty-five because they got a few discount deals, tax rebates, and so on. But Quantum of Solace it remarkably cost two hundred million dollars as well back in twenty oh eight. And Quantum of Solace is like it's not like ninety five minutes long. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, Spectre, you know, paid Daniel Craig. 25 and a half million pounds, which equates to 39 US million dollars. So that's a decent chunk of change out of the budget. I mean, look, the Transformers movies are obviously horrible, but Transformers 1 only cost 147 million dollars. And that the the sort of scale of the action in that is big. So I don't know. I just maybe they didn't have to pay Optimus Prime 25 million bucks to appear. <laughs> well, that brings us to the box office. So you mentioned before, let's start with Rogue Nation. That had a budget of $150 million. 
it did. I actually have a guess. Which film do you think made more international or in total? Worldwide. My guess would be Spectre made more worldwide, but the MI movies are nice little learners. Yeah, so Rogue Nation cost 150 to make. It did 195 domestically in the States, plus 487.5 million internationally for a worldwide total of $682.5 million. So it made about $108 million profit when you subtract the costs of cinemas and marketing. Uh, it actually made less than Ghost Protocol. Interestingly, I thought everyone thought at the time would actually would kind of build on the momentum of Ghost Protocol, but it didn't. It didn't make a lot less and it still made $100 million in profit. But interestingly, these films don't make, they don't get to that $1 billion mark, like significantly less than that, but obviously enough to keep going. Spectre cost allegedly $245 million, did 200 in the States, almost the same, but Internationally, $680.5 million for a worldwide total of $880.5 million. So basically did an extra $200 million more. Yeah, good for Spectre. That makes sense, right? I mean, it's, you know, Bond films have always done well internationally with audiences, very recognisable, and I think they're less controversial than the actor Tom Cruise. Sure, sure. Then Broccoli uh, family, they... Are uh, rich. Good for them. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, do you think Rogue Nation spoiled Spectre or not? Two different films, so unlikely to have, you know, diminished the appetite for a spy movie. No, I think you're right. I mean, given that they have weirdly similar plots, they totally fit into the twin movies paradigm, but... Um, I don't think your general audience would look at one and the other and go, I feel like I've seen that. Yeah, I, I agree. They'll just they'll just watch it and go, I feel like I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know. All right, let's uh, jump to Rotten Tomatoes. So, Gabe, which movie impressed the critics, do you think? I think Rogue Nation probably got better reviews. Am I right? Yep, Rogue Nation, 93% on the tomato meter with critics and Spectre had a very low 63%. How about the fans? Uh I don't know. Even Stevens. 87% for Rogue Nation and 61% with Spectre. Yeah, right. Everyone felt like Spectre was a bit of a step down, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. All right, let's go to the awards. Now, do we ask Sam to insert a drum roll here or something new this time? No. No, no sound effects, please, Sam. No, 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 <laughs> no sound effects, please, Sam. <laughs> um, no what sound about someone showing celery, for example? <laughs> please, Sam, Sam. No um, what about someone chewing the celery, for example? Sure. Or something like that to really kind of throw the audience. No, maybe not. Okay, maybe, maybe. Best title? Uh, 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 Mission Impossible, Rogue Day. I don't know. Spectre? <laughs> I don't know. I'll give it to Rogue Nation. Are we calling it Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation? Yes. Okay. Why, why, why is that better than Spectre? Uh, Spectre just... Trades too much on your assumption as to the Blowfield character from the previous movies and I don't think is evocative enough. Uh, no, like the Bond series has had some really cool titles. Uh, the Man with the Golden Gun, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, but Spectre is very generic compared to something sweet like Licence to Kill or The Spy Who Loved Me. Well, the new film is called What No Time to Die or something. I find those titles a bit too confusing. I thought Skyfall was boring. I thought Casino Royale was the best title in that it sounded exotic, but it was also not too confusing. All those films that say die today and not tomorrow and keep dying and don't stop dying, 
I confuse all those movies together. What? Oh, like Tomorrow Never Dies and- Yeah, there's like a thousand. The new one's called No Time to Die and Die Harder. The, the Living Die Lights. Yeah. You, you see what I did? I made that. I, I treated that one. Too much living and dying. Uh, die another day. I don't know. I don't. I don't mind them. I just hope at one point James uh, Bonder looks at the camera and goes, "Sorry, no time to die." Zoink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, best poster uh, for the podcast listeners at home. Check your app. You can see both posters side by side. There's kind of two for Mission Impossible. They're to me pretty boring. The first one is like a white one sheet which has a giant Tom Cruise head with like the landscape at 45 degree angle with a motorbike chase and then just the characters standing below Tom Cruise's giant head. It's a really boring poster. The other one is basically a still shot of Tom Cruise holding onto the edge of the plane. Uh, for Spectre, the main one is basically, it's very Bondy. It's basically Daniel Craig wearing a white tux, arms folded, holding a gun and says Spectre. To me, they're pretty boring posters. They should make, <laughs> they should, they should make a movie, Ben, where the the size of the character's heads on the poster is actually to scale in the movie. So Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, has a huge head and Benji's just a little guy. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your winner? Uh, look, the Rogue Nation one is marginally better. The Spectre one's very generic, kind of boring. Also, it's got Craig wearing his skull face mask in the background, which he only wears in the opening sequence and isn't important at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, let's give it reluctantly to Rogue Nation. Moving on, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck, who jumped from an indie film into the Hollywood big time in these twin movies? Well, we know who we're giving this to, right? Yeah, we do. Go. Rebecca. Should we do it on the count of three? Oh, Okay. I just said her first name. Ah, one, two, three, Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson. Anyway, good for her. Um, I I had as a runner-up there Christopher McQuarrie. Yeah. With Spectre, at a stretch maybe, Andrew Scott, but. Yeah, I guess. Did you ever see him in, did you ever see him in Sherlock? No, no. I did see him in that film though by Phoebe, what's her name? Oh, yeah. Where, is that the hot priest one that people banged on about? Exactly. Excuse the pun. Right. I never, I never saw that. In 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 Sherlock, he did a funny voice. I I assumed that that was the first time I'd seen him, and I hoped that that was his real voice, and it's not. No. <laughs> I just think all of his roles have improved if he just did his like funny voice. <laughs> I like I like funny voices. I like it when characters do funny voices. That's yeah. So I think we say sorry, Andy S. You missed out, but Becky F. You get the award. Okay. All right. Hook. The Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, starting with Rogue Nation. Uh, there weren't many here. I had uh, Hermione Caulfield who played the record shop girl in the opening sequence who is next starring in The Misfits with a former James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, from Rennie Harland, he of Die Hard, Die Harder. Wow. That can't, can't wait to see that uh, come up for... Two bucks on iTunes or whatever. Um, yeah, there's no one really. I mean, 2015. No one, no one really popped off big since then in any of these, did they? Although I think I have a nominee for Spectre. Okay, uh, Dave Batista. No, hadn't he already been in Guardians of the Galaxy? Had he? I don't know. 2015. When was the first Guardians of the Galaxy? 2014. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Also, I believe he had been quite famous in something called the WWE. I don't know. Oh, that's the organisation that saves pandas, right? 
the worldwide environmental organization. Exactly, exactly. And and that's just because Dave himself dresses up as a big panda, you know? And he just gets around, ooh, what a big, what a lovable, what a lovable fella. But apparently he doesn't like to mate. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, you gotta really coax him hard. <laughs> Actually, I have a nominee for the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them for Spectre. Okay. All right. And I reckon this is possibly the best award winner in the history so far of the Twin Movies podcast series. Wow. All right. Hit me. So it plays off Blink and You'll Miss Them. Right. Inspector, one of the eyes seen in the opening credit sequence is the actor Carrie Gillen's eye. She of Guardians of the Galaxy and Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Wow. That is literally Blink and You'll Miss Them. Yeah. That is like a deep cut. So I feel that she has to- That's, that's a great piece of trivia, dude. Yeah. She has to take the award, right? Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Hey, while we're here, the opening credit sequence for Spectre is pretty weak and the song's not great. Well, this is the thing too. I think this is the first film where at the start of a film they'd gone back to doing an opening sequence. So this is back to my theory, I suppose, that they were leaning back to the good old Pierce Brosnan and uh, 80s Bond films and- Doing the opening sequence is kind of part and parcel of that. I agree, it's not great. Although I do think the image of an octopus, you have a lot of fun with. And some of the- No, they did. The Casino Royale has an opening title sequence because it's got that Chris Cornell song. I actually can't even remember. I'm going from the IMDb trivia and they're never wrong. <laughs> right. And Adele did the Skyfall song. But was it to a credit sequence? I can't remember. I think, I think they did it at the end. So what they did was they did like a sequence with like those cool graphics and stuff like they normally do, but at the end of Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. I don't know. Maybe I just remember the music videos. Anyway, and then there was obviously the Alicia Keys and Jack White. Look, none of the most recent songs, I guess, are as good as Tina Turner doing Goldeneye or... You know, Shirley Bassey doing Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me Yeah, exactly. Or uh, Madonna doing something once, didn't she, um, I think? <laughs> uh, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. That was pretty good. Okay. Uh, and look, I know, Ben, I know you're a huge Wings fan, so obviously Live and Let Die is your <laughs> number one pick. You used to say Ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in a cry 
that's a great that's a great one song so it actually is yeah all right let's move ahead to the tommy lee jones show stealer award named after the iconic performance by tommy lee in a supporting role in the fugitive who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role starting with rogue nation so this isn't about chewing the scenery am i correct correct this is just actually this is good acting this is doing a lot with a little. Okay. Uh, well, could I give it to Sean Harris? Is he? Can he yeah, be someone? He's my nominee. Yep. Okay. And under Spectre, I had Ray Fiennes because I just think he actually brings a lot on screen, even if the role is pretty small. Uh, I'd vote for Ben Wishaw because. Oh yeah, he's cute and cuddly. He's the voice of Paddington. Oh well, he actually is cute and cuddly. There you go. You know. Good casting. Um, look. Oh, okay. So it's Sean versus Ben. Uh, I, I, I'm obviously going to want to give any award to Sean Harris because Sean, Sean gets it done. I, and I feel like he, he always looks so sad and grim. I just would cheer him up. To- He's in a great film actually playing a baddie. It's this film called, I think it's Harry Brown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in that one sequence where he keeps tweaking his nipples. And I think he's a heroin dealer or something, right? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. He has a face that's just so iconic. That's the, that's the absolute high point of that movie, um, um, Harry Brown. But also he played Ian Curtis in 24-Hour Party People, which is just a fantastic Michael Winterbottom movie starring Coogan, um, and he's really good as Ian Curtis. Anyway, anytime he turns up on screen doing anything, you know, even in arguably pretty average movies, like uh, Scott Derrickson made a spooky movie with Eric Banner and um, – Edgar Ramirez, all about like cops investigating the paranormal. Anyway, he's the villain in that. He's just great. I just love him. I love him. All right. He definitely gets it. I love him. Okay. Moving on to the Dustin Diamond Award, named in honour of the actor who didn't kick on with a big career, uh, Rogue Nation. I've got two nominees. I actually have Sean Harris, although he did reluctantly come back for the follow-up film. No. He's a supporting actor and he's got a great career. He's killing it. Okay. Jeremy Renner. (laughs) Yeah. He's a nominee because- Unfortunately, he couldn't reboot his career. He couldn't do it with Bourne, couldn't do it with this one. Uh, I guess he's had Hawkeye to fall back on. That's all I had and no one for Spectre. How about you? Look, I don't want to knock Mr. Renner himself too hard, but Hawkeye is definitely the the worst one of those Avengers. Yeah, but at least he's actually like, earned some cash. He's, apparently he buys and flips houses and spends most of his time doing that these days. So I guess... Yes, his career hasn't been as big as it could be, but Hawkeye is that steady paycheck which pays the bills. Right. But I don't think he's, from an acting point of view, I don't think he's made the most of the opportunity he's had right. since the town, since the Hurt Locker. Sure. He was great in the town, wasn't he? Um, and Spectre, I don't know, I wish Naomi Harris was in more stuff. Oh, well, she's, there's an award for that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um I don't know. Should we just put it as maybe 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 there aren't any winners this this week? Okay. No winners. Okay. The winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high, starting with Rogue Nation? Rebecca Ferguson? Yeah, I've got her and also the director Christopher McQuarrie. Uh, and under Spectre, I actually really had Ray Fines because I thought everyone was at such a low level that he was doing the best out of anyone, which is a pretty sad reflection given how little he is in the film. This is a dumb question. Did he get set up in the previous one to this? Did or is this You mean you mean put in that position in the chair, the role? Yeah, as as M. Yeah, he did. Right. I, yeah, he did. It's, like I, I think he appears at the very end of Skyfall 
she dies, but he's kind of like brought in halfway through the film as a character and then assumes her role. Right, right. Hey, what award are we talking about again? <laughs> the winner winner chicken dinner, who came out on top. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Daniel Craig got paid a shit ton of money. Yeah, I guess he did really well. Uh, actually, from a financial point of view, he definitely did. I would say this set up both Ferguson and Macquarie. I'm going to put it as a tie for them because this just – well, Ferguson already has an award, so I might let her keep that one. But for Macquarie, this basically – he was in director's jail for about 10, 11, 12 years after Way of the Gun. He comes in and does – bit of rewriting on Valkyrie, forms this Tom Cruise relationship. But this film was so good to him, he's now doing four Mission Impossible films in a row. Wait, what? Yeah. I thought he was doing two coming up. Well, no, it'll end up being four in entirety. Oh, you mean? Okay, I see. Right. Yep. Oh, yeah, he often talks on Twitter about pitching his original ideas and no one going for them, but, you know, as far as a... The, the the disappointment of a life led having your ideas shot down that in between those he pisses off and does, you know, $200 million budget Mission Impossible movies. So truly how bad could life be? He's just the best raconteur when he talks about filmmaking in general and he can talk for like three hours underwater and he, he's pitched these ideas like ones about, I think it's uh, Booth. It's called Booth. It's about the guy that actually shot uh, Lincoln and it's a fascinating story. And he refers to all these amazing ideas he's had, scripts that have been through 10 rewrites. No one will touch them. But here he is sort of locked into not director's jail, but it's like, I don't know, it's it's a good situation to pay the bills. But to do four films back to back, I think is kind of a shame because I'd like to see him doing a wider variety of stories. Well, I mean, all of his most recent Credits, Edge of Tomorrow, Rogue Nation, The Mummy, Mission Impossible Fallout, Top Gun Maverick, Mission Impossible 7 and 8. They're all Tom Cruise movies. So I can only assume that Tom Cruise passed on the role of uh, Booth and that's the reason he couldn't get it up. He was like, hey, TC, do you want to do the John Wilkes Booth origin story? Tom Cruise was like, I don't know, what's in it? And he's like, you get to shoot Lincoln in the back of the head. No, it's not for me. (laughs) Are there stunts? Nah, not really. You climb the stairs and you walk into a small little, excuse the pun, booth at the uh, theatre, that's about all. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, that's right. Could could we reset that sequence to be underwater? <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, should we give it to Macquarie? Sure, I forgot what the award was again, so do that. It's the winner, winner, chicken dinner award or... I have a very short memory, dude. It's like a fish. Or as TC calls him, uh, I Q. love it. On set, they might be like, yo, TC, yo, McHugh. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you know, and if you then part of their little sweet inner circle, you get a nickname too. <laughs> All right, best dialogue award. Uh, let's start with Rogue Nation. I think you and I have the same one and I want you to read it out because you're going to absolutely smash this out of the park. It is the best, most cinematic line and I think you know which one I'm talking about. Uh, join the IMF, see the world on a monitor in a closet. I'll give you a clue. Alec Baldwin, playing the character of Alan Hunley, has the line and starts off, Hunt is uniquely trained and highly motivated. I want you to read this line because only you could read it as well as Alec Baldwin. Oh, thank you. Uh, if anyone's interested, right after this, I'll do the entire monologue from Glengarry Glen Ross to just find the link where the podcasts are. And yeah, I'll be doing the always be closing uh, Alec Baldwin monologue. 
if you're interested. <laughs> um, okay, so you want me to deliver this. I mean, earlier today uh, in the podcast, you talked about um, doing a little bit of acting. Uh, you're at the Surrey Hills uh, Centre for Actors uh, with No Shot and Less Talent or whatever it was. <laughs> so here we go. Hunt is uniquely trained and highly motivated a specialist without equal, immune to any countermeasures. There is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. He has most likely anticipated this very conversation and is waiting to strike in whatever direction we move. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny and he's made you his mission. I feel like um, I didn't deliver it with quite the panache that... uh, um, Alec Baldwin did. If you'd like to compare and contrast, here's Alec doing it. Hunt is uniquely trained and highly motivated. A specialist without equal, immune to any countermeasures. There is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. He has most likely anticipated this very conversation and is waiting to strike in whatever direction we move. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny and he has made you his mission. So here are my thoughts on that line. It is ridiculous, but Alec Baldwin delivers it so well. I mean, just the last line, Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. It is such movie dialogue, but it's just written to be grounded enough and delivered by someone of Alec Baldwin's expertise that you buy it. I love it. Um the living manifestation of destiny. Like, yeah, I, I love it when writers do this sort of like, uh, let's call it heightened. Uh, yeah, totally. Movie dialogue. He's immune to any countermeasures. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Like, he could be describing um, a a rocket or something like that. If you just replace the word hunt with rocket, it would sound pretty similar. Well, you know, in the next one, when Ethan does that halo jump, they do fire all these countermeasures at him, and he just. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was my nominee, and under Spectre, I had a really simple one. It's just Mr. White saying, You're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. You're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. Yeah. Actually, that's quite a memorable sequence in an otherwise fairly forgettable movie. He's very good, Jesper Christensen, and I agree. That's probably the best line. I think they use it in the trailer. Who's your winner? Well, look, um, given that I had the opportunity to essay... Mr. Baldwin's um, delivery of the line, uh, giving it my own special spin, um, picking up an actor award uh, and an agent in the process. I'm obviously going to give it to MI Rogue Nations. Well, rather than perhaps handing this award to Alec Baldwin, and there are delays in sending mail overseas at the moment, perhaps it's be better if we saw Alex could give you a a two-week internship with him and his yoga instructor wife, uh, perhaps as like a houseboy, where he could take lessons in acting for two weeks over in LA. I feel like most of that would just be him yelling at me for fucking shit up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Let's start with Rogue Nation. Here we are. This is the award I like, Chewing the Scenery. Um, It's not Simon Peak playing Benji. Yeah, maybe. These movies could actually do with a little more scenery. Chewing. I guess Henry Cavill got that memo in the next one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And did a little chew. Um, well, his moustache did a lot of the chewing as well. But for this film, I don't know, Simon Pegg does a lot of 
those uh-oh spaghettios faces right uh, as the comic relief and spectre i'd say you'd say christopher waltz right but he's not even he's just doing himself like there's not you know any big choices or i don't know he feels like kind of dull isn't we've just teased Chewing the scenery for the last 15 minutes. Are you saying we can't find a nominee? <laughs> I'm saying these movies would benefit from, you know, like I joked earlier, like give Dave Batista like metal fingers or something. You know, he pokes a guy's eye out to set his character up. Ooh, he can – apparently all you need to take the job of the guy above you in the Spectral organisation is just to walk up behind him and kill them. Um, all right. In the, in the spirit of that, then let's call it a dead rubber with no award winners – because no one shoot enough. That's right. That's right. If Dave Batista had metal legs, winner. All right. Let's jump to the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. So Rogue Nation. I mean, given given all they joked about luring Craig back, I know we're talking about Rogue Nation, but isn't he just the winner? Like, Yeah, I think so. I think we give him the award. He earned, you know, $30 million plus. Uh, he wasn't very happy about it. He gave bad press coverage afterwards and referred to preferring to slash his wrists than star another one. So he's the winner. Let's move on. I mean, what a sook. <laughs> Fuck. Exactly. Yeah. The Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the actor who appeared as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Gabe, who triggered Hates That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? Starting with Rogue Nation. Okay, well, uh, we've talked about Sean Harris, so not him. Uh, Tom Hollander, you know, he pops up as the, the Prime Minister who I don't even know if gets a name, he's just Prime Minister. Yeah, he's classic. He was in Hannah, Pride and Prejudice, at Gosford Park and About Time. He's a good nominee. He was quite great in Hannah, wasn't he? He played like the, the bleached hair assassin. Yeah, he was awesome. It's kind of the only thing I remember from that. Yeah, he was great. Film. He's in a lot of stuff. Um, uh, Simon McBurney. Um, oh, who played Atlee. He's from Tinker Tailor, The Last King of Scotland and Body of Lies. He's got like the most unfortunate hairline. Of any working actor. His hairline <laughs> is spectacular. So let's describe it to the podcast listeners if they haven't Googled already. It's like he was bald and he had, I'm not saying he's had this, but it looks like he was bald and he had like hair transplant where he's put like a hairline in a regular place across his it's, forehead, but then there's no hair behind it. It's and amazing. He should just shave his head, but he continues to maintain this Halo of a few strings stretched across his scalp. Totally, he doesn't even cut his hair short. He like he's like he's like he's like waving this hairline in our faces. Uh, I can not recommend enough googling Simon McBurney hair. Um, In Body of Lies, same hairstyle, and I remember that scene with his hairline more than the rest of Body of Lives. And I love that movie. Yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, I'm glad we got to talk about Simon McBurney's hair. <laughs> and maybe he's just clinging to, you know, when he was younger, if you look at pictures when he was younger, he had a nice full head of hair, kind of handsome guy. He's just clinging to clinging to that. Just shave your head, bro. Look, Mark Strong shaves his head, looks great. Exactly. The problem with Simon McBurney is that rather than receding at the temples, he's just receded at the back, but weirdly the front has just hung in there. Ah, it's like it's like a classic Premier League's white soccer player haircut. I find it like an eclipse. I can't look away. I just... Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's so distracting. Oh, man. All right. Uh, Spectre, I had Rory Kinnear, who plays Tanner. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Who you'd very memorably remember as the pig fucker Prime Minister. Yes, from the Black Mirror episode. Yeah. 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 Um, 
I, I sort of feel like we've talked it into Simon McBurney, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely. All right. Or just his hair. Just his hair. Just give it to his hair, you know. <laughs> There's like, and it just waves there. It's like two samurais could fight atop his head amidst like gently flowing hair. I don't know. It, it, I feel like there's actually a website you could do or a YouTube channel. There's one called Pimple Poppers, right? Oh, gross. Where you basically watch this uh, dermatologist. Yeah, she squeezes cysts and blackheads and zits and- Disgusting. All sorts of things. I sort of feel like there's a hairline version of that, which is just based on- just various close-up shots of the camera moving across Simon McBurney's hairline. Totally. Do you remember? Do you remember is Abe Vigoda dead.com or whatever? No. Okay. Abe Vigoda was an actor from The Godfather and so on. There was a website called Is Abe Vigoda Dead? Anyway, every day it would say no until one day it said yes. Um, you know, has Simon McBurney cut his hair.com? <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you basically have a little clock ticking in the corner. One day. For every day that goes by. One day. Excellent. And then if he gets his hair cut, it resets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just cut it short, mate. Anyway. Let's move on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Uh, Rogue Nation. Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle. Okay. You laughed when I said Tom Cruise, right? Ah, uh, Tom Cruise, oh, he's not cast enough. No, he's a big movie star. Ving Rhames, actor, filmography, IMDb, 132 credits. Tom Cruise, actor, IMDb, 50 credits. Tom Cruise, compared to Ving Rhames, is not cast enough. Boom. How about Tom Cruise should choose, because if he wants to get cast, he can, he should choose to do more roles like he did in Magnolia. Oh, totally, totally. Don't be a lead actor all the time. Step back, have some fun. But the problem is, is that he's so conscious of maintaining his off-screen persona and the idea that he is essentially the new Maximus of IMAX cinema, that he just, I think, can't be seen to be doing like slumming it, doing a drama, which is such a shame because oh, no, his best role. No, 20, yeah, what? 2017, American Made, you know, he goes and does that. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, uh, supporting role in Rock of Ages. Yeah. But you're right, you're right. I mean, it, they, are, they are few and far between the bigger, the bigger things. The one time he's laughed at himself was when he wore that fat suit with the chubby fingers and he played oh, yeah. the bald guy from, what's that movie called? Les Grossman, Tropic Thunder. Exactly. Uh, Spectre, I had, I mentioned her before, Naomi Harris as Money Penny. Yeah, she's great. Put her in more stuff. She was really great in- She was in Miami Vice. She was awesome. 20, 28 days yep, later. She's great. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who's your winner? Give, give it to Naomi. Done. Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Reigns. Nick Reigns. <laughs> Nick Reigns. Nice. Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? <sighs> Isla Faust? I mean, I, it's so weird that a Bond movie is losing an award for most ludicrous name. Totally. Totally. What has happened to this series? You know, even the, the Brosnan ones had, you know, Christmas Jones and- Various stupid names, but, oh, man, bring that shit back. Dave Batusta's character is called Hinks. The the name is almost there. Call him Jinx, right? He always Jinx. Oh, they've already done a character called Jinx. Uh, oh, Halle Berry. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, choose something there where basically call him Destiny or, you know, uh, um, Boulder or something. I don't know. Like, I just feel like you're going to go for the big Hulk of a character who's the silent type. 
Give him a name that at least conveys character through his name. We're a long way from uh, Pussy Galore, aren't we? Uh, yeah, I guess we are and times have changed. <laughs> you know, Honey Rider. Uh, no, but I mean, Xenia on a top. Oh, classic. You know, that was a cool name. Anyway, it's bring some of that shit back. You know, they don't have to be like Pussy Galore, but, you know, a little bit of little bit of pepper on that steak wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I think I think Isla Faust has to be it, right? Yeah, and that's that's a that's a legitimately cool sounding name. Yeah, okay. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. Let's start with Rogue Nation. I had the train station confrontation. I have no yeah. memory of that. You know the part where they he sits down with Rebecca Ferguson and the other guys are all kind of surrounding them. I just couldn't recall that before at all. Yeah, I'd vote for the plots of both movies. I couldn't recall those. Well, I actually have a spectre. The entire movie except the opening and final sequence. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, spectre gets yeah. it. And, it, like, it's weird because I forgot how kind of low rent the end of spectre is when they're just sort of running through, like, a, a warehouse, you know? Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, with signage and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, what? Oh. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and also, too, just to... Rob sold to the wounds in terms of having a passive female character. You know, she's tied up, she's gagged and surrounded by, you know, strings and a bomb. It's so cliched. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, at the end when he's on the bridge and everyone's there, like, watching, is he going to shoot Blofeld in the head? Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, we've got to the Die Hard Award. We're almost in the uh, home stretch, named after the influence of Die Hard, which inspired a subgenre of an everyday hero against a group of baddies in a single location, like Under Siege. So, Gabe, if imitation is the ultimate flattery, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? No. <laughs> Except each other. So, yeah. To me, they've become actually so generic in their storyline that they now imitate the previous film in their own franchise. That's right. I mean, with the next one, you know, I guess they dinged. Uh, Skyfall for doing the for ripping off the Dark Knight idea of the villain whose plan was always to be captured, blah blah blah. But it feels like in the next one they're just going to do that again with blow. Anyway, who knows? Yeah, they're generic enough that they're just ripping themselves off by now, aren't they? I can hear the exhaustion in your voice, and I hear you. I feel you. So let's 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 spice things up, Gabe, because I feel like we've come to that time of the podcast, baby. It's the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Rogue Nation or Spectre. They're both espionage movies about spies chasing after secret criminal organisations through various countries like Austria, Morocco and London, while their intelligence agencies are shutting down and it appears that both have antagonists that are the authors of the lead character's pain. So, which film could we make a sequel to? And what's a pitch to make it? With, I guess, the caveat that they have made a sequel to Rogue Nation and a sequel to Spectre is coming out. Well, if someone said to you, Ben, hey, dude, you can write either a Bond film or a Mission Impossible movie, which would you want to write? Oh, good one. Okay. Uh, I would want to write... Oh, it's hard. Okay. I feel the challenge from a screenwriting point of view would be to write a James Bond film to make it fresh. But I also like the idea that the Mission Impossible films have kind of, don't they don't feel beholden to their roots in any way at all. Like there is, 
barely any link beyond the title between the TV series, which was the original intellectual property behind the first film back in 96 and where we are now in 2020. So I would like the challenge of trying to do a reinvention of the James Bond film. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of taking one of those Reddit theories where essentially rather than being the same character, James Bond, and they've just changed the actors over the last 50 years, James Bond 007 is an identity that's given to the top spy for the job in a certain era. And that way we can actually have a different actor but also a different character playing James Bond. This is this is Judy Dench's fault, isn't it? Because they kept the continuity of her. This whole Reddit theory just hangs off that, doesn't it? Well, because she is still there. What are you saying that because she's the continuing face, then it is the same character or isn't? Well, I'm saying if if they hadn't kept Judy Dench between Brosnan and Daniel Craig movies, this theory would be I'm look, I'm not going to call this theory credible, but it would make more sense, uh, would make less sense. But because they kept her but changed Bond, I mean, it feels like, yeah, you could totally sell this idea through with the current James Bond continuity or whatever. So, sure, if... Yeah, but they're bringing back um, Burton, Tim, not Tim Burton, uh, they're bringing back what's-his-name to play Batman in the first Batman film in 89. Michael Keaton? Yeah. But bringing back him from what? He's being brought... He's coming back as Batman in the new Flash movie. What? As a mentor character, as a mentor Batman. In Flash, a Flash movie? Yep, because those movies, the whole idea of apparently the Flashpoint storyline in the comics, which the new Flash movie will be about, is you've got multiverses, right? So that justifies having different actors playing Batman or having this landscape as insane and batshit crazy as Tim Burton's gothic-inspired high production design of the 89 Batman sitting adjacent to the grounded Zack Snyder universe. Wait, wait. And he's going to come back as a Batman. This doesn't make any sense. As a mentor Batman. So in a series that had already established Ben Affleck as Batman, Michael Keaton's now going to roll in. In a series that had already established its own Joker, Michael Keaton will roll in having defeated Jack Nicholson's Joker. No, this fucking doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. But you can because the Flashpoint concept is having multiverses. Uh, now I have to read a comic. <laughs> now, but right now the agents looking at us across the table, we're meant to be there pitching. Oh, yeah, that's right. Now we're arguing amongst ourselves. Our sequel. <laughs> <laughs> and now you, you're talking about reading a comic. God damn it. Begrudgingly. So um, here's my theory, right? Okay, go. I agree. I think the fact that Judy Dench has been there has given credibility to this theory that James Bond 007 is a interchangeable moniker that can be assigned to different spies. At the start of GoldenEye, she says to Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, you're a dinosaur. Things have changed. It can't be all sexy times and sleeping with the enemy in this era. Because ba- Wait, wait, she says that. Something like that, yeah. And then the, the rest of the Brosnan series is that. Yeah, pretty much. Well, no, she crit- criticises him for it as a way of basically being a dinosaur, the moralistic audience to say, come on, dude, catch up. Things have changed. But he kind of goes ahead and indulges in his little vices and the audience kind of gets off on that. It's basically that whole hang your lantern conceit of just saying, oh, look, we hear you. He's still going to do it, but it's not. we don't approve of it. Right. So similarly, you could basically reinvent this 
franchise by having essentially M played by Ray Fiennes make some sort of comment that, hey, Daniel Craig or the next actor like Idris Elba who will get cast or whoever, guess what? Times have changed. Less of the sleeping around, less of the drinking, have more of the V8 vitamin juice, do some more push-ups. No, no, Ben. No, now you can't do that because that's slut-shaming. Now James Bond is going around eating ass. <laughs> right. Now, again, the studio executive is across the table from us. <laughs> we, 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 we're youngin' it up. We're youngin' it up, mate. We know what the millennials or whatever they're called are into and I've read Twitter and that's a recurring joke. So James Bond okay. now just... look, put it this way, right? We, if we're going to do a Make James, James Bond, Bond fun again. Well, James Bond tried to imitate James Bourne, right? Yeah. And now it's gone back to being very James Bondish in terms of, you know, the tuxedos and sleeping around, the big sets, and less of the hand-to-hand fighting. So what do we do? Do we basically just go back to Bourne again? Do we perhaps bring in a female uh, or older or really young character? If it's a young character, that's basically the Kingsman. We can't do that, right? True, true. If we make it more serious, we're leaning towards Bourne. If we make it more humorous, we're leaning towards Rogue Nation, uh, those Mission Impossible movies. Uh, so where do we go? Like, do we do we? Can I put forward an idea? Yes. What if we don't do any of those things? Right. And studio executive, if you're looking at us right now, this is what we should be doing. What if we basically do the Top Gun Maverick thing, essentially where what happens in most professions is that you age out of your role. So a Navy SEAL can't continue forever. You become the manager, right? You step away from the field work. uh, You step into the office. You wear a suit. Top Gun and Maverick will be basically that, right? You become the trainer. What if, for example, that happens in this situation where he takes over M's position, Ray Fiennes' position, right, and he trains up Money Penny, but then at the end has to return to the field. So we get to see him being Bond, but now we've basically got two Bonds, the new Bond and the older Bond, but they're working hand-in-hand as a trio or as a double. What do you think? I reckon that probably halfway through Top Gun 2, Miles Teller's character is going to die and Maverick has to go back out there and whoop some fucking kick some ass. So, sure. So that's that's the pitch I'm putting forward for the new James Bond film we should do. After No Time to Die, if Daniel Cup Craig comes back, we do that. Or can he come back in a cameo? Put a bit of put a few kilos, didn't, bit of a beer belly. Didn't didn't come. didn't Danny Boyle want to kill him off? Was that a point of contention that I think Danny Boyle was like I'll do it but yeah, I think so. Something like that. That's right. So we're gonna if we can't kill him off, that's what we do. We can kill off the person playing James Bond, but pass on the legacy. Right? What if We've, what if our new Bond had a an opening mission and it was to kill someone, and it turned out his target was Bond? So he, okay, okay. How about this? If Spectre was the whole thing, I am the author of your pain. Right? That's the big revelation that everything was uh, destiny, a sense of destiny. Right? In the new film, we go with that idea you said, and it turns out that there have been multiple James Bonds and he always thought he was the only James Bond and now he has to kill the other James Bond. And the question is, he doesn't know if he's the goody or baddie. Which side is he on? He'd be like Ulster Faust from Rogue Nation. At one point she says, I don't know who I'm working for anymore. They're all the same. That's right. To to assume the mantle of Bond, you have to kill the previous Bond. Uh, I don't mind that as an idea. That's kind of cool. So what if Money Penny 
is going to, be, going to become the new 007. Naomi Harris does kick-ass action, great actor. We've already established her in the previous films. That meets the whole idea of maintaining this sort of like longer narrative from movie to movie to movie. And she's now assigned with a role of taking out Daniel Craig's James Bond. She knows that. She's been told that he's gone rogue, which ties into this whole idea of being disavowed. And maybe he has. So it's sort of like Looper. You have to kill the previous version of yourself, but uh, this old James Bond doesn't want to be shot by the new James Bond and goes on the run, of course, without time travel. Okay. So then in this case, for clarity, is Daniel Craig's James Bond, is he being killed legitimately? Like was he framed? Has he actually done something legitimately bad or is he innocent and Naomi Harris basically has been told otherwise that he has done something bad so she has motive to kill him and she's got a strong moral arc until the very end where she finds out that actually he's been set up? I mean, maybe. I mean, you could also just say that every double O agent makes a deal that they will exist under that call sign for a period of 10 years after which they will be retired. But for that 10 years, they get all the shaken, not stirred martinis and pussy galores they can get their hands on. And But after that- Oh, I love it. I love it. So, you know. That's just like Looper, as you say. But what is cool about that is that it gen- then justifies the entire characterization of Bond as a playboy. Because he knows his time is up in 10 years. That's why he drinks hard. That's why he fucks hard. <laughs> That's why it's all good times, right? Those, those are verbatim lines from the movie, you know. <laughs> uh, when the old James Bond says to the new James Bond before he pulls the trigger, just promise me something. He's like, anything, James, drink hard, fuck hard. <laughs> <laughs> Is that our title? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's just end the pitch there and it's just called, you know, fuck hard. <laughs> Well, given all those films are about, you know, die another day, no time to die, the living daylights, keep on dying, keep on trying, get rich or die trying, whatever they are. They're always about dying and living and so on. Yeah. Perhaps that's our new title. Great. I love it. That's it. Drink hard, fuck hard. There you go. A young James Bond hunts an old James Bond. Yeah. It's great. And, and, and that's the big revelation halfway through the movie. It's like this is a poison chalice to Money Penny. If you want to become the next Bond, you have to kill for it which ties into those whole, that whole uh, concept in many cultures where you've got to kill your first bear as a teenager or, oh, yeah. you know, essentially it's like this is the devil's pack you make and by doing that, if you can pull the trigger the first time on the previous bond, they know that you're morally compromised enough to do the job as a bond because if you can't do that, you can't be a bond. Exactly. And that's how they base it. That's the first test to be a bond. And nice. Money Penny pulls the trigger and then we suddenly – flashback to every Bond movie we've ever seen before where we know that every one of those Bonds killed one of their own, the previous incarnation, and did something morally corrupt. And then, But then basically ever since then have been trying to sort of buy their way back by doing the right thing as a servant, as a to, you know, what, what's the expression? Her Majesty's service? On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, they've always been a servant of the Queen ever since to buy themselves back into the good books, but they never can because once you pull that trigger once and you take the mantle of 007, there ain't no way going back and the clock is ticking until you yourself will become a victim. I like it. I like it a lot. All right, we need a title. Didn't we just come up with one? Something that would be on a movie poster for the 13-year-olds to see as well. Uh, If I was a 13-year-old and I saw a movie titled this, I'd want to see it way more. (laughs) 
than <laughs> if it was just called Spectre. Okay, let's go for something more like um, Your Time Comes Again or um, Come Again, C-U-M? No, too rude. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. <laughs> There's got to be a, a, a play on words. Come on, the, the executive's across the table. He's looking at us. We need to really bring it home because it's got to be the poster that gets bums onto seats. Come on, Gabe. Work with me here. Okay, his name is Bond and these two Bonds, they are bonded. What are they bonded by, Ben? Oh, that's good. Yep. Are they bonded by blood, bonded by duty, bonded by... Are they Bond Bond brothers? No, because Naomi Harris is going to be the next one, okay? Bond. They're not blood brothers. Are they Bond brothers? Are they... Bond brothers. Uh, bonded. Too Bond, too furious? No. Too... Uh... Uh, bonded by destiny, bonded by time. Bonded by bond. destiny. Oh, that's uh, perfect. Okay, we'll just call it that for now. Working yeah. title, colon, fuck harder. <laughs> and that's how we make a sequel to the James Bond film, Spectre. Nice. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work in musings this week? Uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash Gabe Dowrick. I'll put the full Alec Baldwin, Glen Gary, Glen Ross monologue up there. Nice. I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this podcast and my other podcasts in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening, folks, as always. If you like the show, please tweet about it, share it with your mates. Stay tuned for another Twin Battles very soon. Adios, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs>